So I'm going to, chapter nine, uh, the remainder of chapter nine has some material, uh, particularly on contingent fees, that is uh, causes confusion. So we'll spend some time on that. I'll try and clarify some of the problems with, with those rules. Um, much of this chapter, though, really has to do with um, fairly straightforward, fairly uh, uh, sort of black letter kind of rules that are important to have, right? They're important to know. Um, these, these are, this is material that is sometimes tested on the MPRE. And uh, so we'll go through that. So this is gonna be mostly lecture today, um, but I'm gonna ask, uh, invite you to speak up if you wanna ask any questions as we go through this, because this is a lot of material to go through. And I want to—I uh, don't want to rush through it, either. So um, uh, raise your hand if I don't happen to see you. Just just go ahead and speak up. That's fine with me. I can mute you if I have to. Okay. So let me start with. Uh, okay. So everybody got, I assume, the uh, the PowerPoint. Uh, are you finding that useful? Have the PowerPoints in advance. Okay. First of all, we'll be talking about contingent fees. And you, you've seen, you've all seen ads like this for lawyers, you know, uh, personal injury lawyers in particular, you know, we, we, don't get, we don't get paid until you get paid, things like that. For a long time, uh, contingent fees were viewed with suspicion in the profession and they were prohibited for a long time. Why, why is that, do you think? Why uh, did the profession, uh, Look, uh, look cross or side-eyed at uh, at uh, contingent fees. Anybody? Uh, Stephen. Well, it kind of motivates uh, lawyers to, and I guess the feeling was that it would uh, cause them to do things outside of what might be considered ethical in order to uh, procure a larger verdict and thus get a larger fee on contingency. Okay, um, what, kind of, what kind of unethical things might they do? I don't have any examples. Yeah, that's just what the book says, yeah. Um, Austin, what do you think? I think they may have been looked at with suspicion because it can kind of look like they're taking advantage of some uh, lower socioeconomic clients who, um, kind of feel like they need to, uh, sorry, like they take advantage of people who can't, who are less educated and don't really understand what the contingent fee is because they take, you know, such a large proportion of the, uh, when, sorry, uh, judgment. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, let's see, Lewis? Just lawyers will be more selective in the cases they choose. Like they'll choose ones they think they can win ones that they don't think they'll win, like have no chance, they'll be less selective in taking those. So that's an argument for or against contingent fees? Well, that's the problem. Like it limits availability of lawyers in the sense because they will only be willing to take cases they think they'll win. Okay. And uh, maybe that's a separate question. Do we want people to go into court with cases that are sure losers or, or, uh, or not? Uh, Hannah? Um, the book said that if their outlook turns or if they don't think they're going to get a large 
um, return for their fee that they were just rushed through the process to get it over so they can get another client that they could get a larger contingent fee off of. Yeah, yeah. Um, somebody else had their hand up. I guess you're done. Um, anything else? Looking at the at the the legal profession, I mean. Yeah, um, uh, I think I mean if you're working on a case and you have like a contingency basis, uh, looking at the outcome of the case, maybe when you like you don't track your hours, uh, maybe you won't give like the best of your effort working on a case, and um, you know maybe you'll be a little bit slacking on the like when working on the case. Mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly, that is certainly something that happens. I think the casebook mentions uh, the problems of uh, settlement mills, firms that just file these uh, cases and hope for a settlement and rarely, if ever, go into actual litigation. So that's a problem. I think that another problem, though, um, that, I've, that has been uh, noted in other areas or another reason that the profession tended to look down on these cases or on these lawyers is that who brings these cases? These are plaintiffs who are injured, again, by um, usually uh, uh, could be against another person, but those are uh, but quite often these that can be uh, 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 products liability cases, other kinds of things like that. So in many instances, these are these are individual plaintiffs who bring cases against the big corporate defendants that uh, lawyers in the big in the big law firms. Tend to uh, pro, uh, tend to uh, represent most of the time, so I think there's uh, sort of a uh, there is a bit of a class uh, divide there. I think that, uh, and certainly when when contingent fees first sort of started becoming a part of the legal profession in the U.S., um, there was a sense that these were. Um, these were not the usual white shoe lawyers that did this sort of thing. They were often um, uh, representing immigrants to the U.S. and in some cases were immigrants themselves, uh, or at least were minorities. Um, and there was that. There was a, there was resentment about that. Um, those resentments have not gone away, have they? But um, I think that that was part of the problem. Uh, but there are there are benefits to to contingent fees. In fact, one of the uh, uh, I, I think, Lewis, you talked about the sort of filtering out of, of cases that are not going to win. That's one of the things that the, rest, the restatement uh, talks about as a benefit, that it filters cases, it filters out frivolous cases, because a lawyer is not going to take a case if they're not going to get paid for it. Uh, so that, that incentivizes lawyers to filter out bad cases. Although in some instances, again, we do see that they'll, they'll take a case for its nuisance value. That does happen. And they'll get a settlement for their for the client and so on, but there are so the, that's that's these are the reasons why the the rules as we have them put various restrictions on contingent fees. Russell, yeah, I was just going to say, just thinking about Lewis's point too, and like I, I get that, and I think I think in the book they talked about how um, potentially that it the contingent fees could allow lawyers to take cases that are maybe more like 50-50. Um, and they kind of, it's almost kind of like an, an insurance, uh, the contingent fee, you know, that you're gonna, you, you get some slam dunk cases that might be able to cover for a case that might be worth a lot of money should you win, but is it necessarily a guarantee? So I guess the, maybe that's a way to give a client a chance at a 50-50 case that maybe, I don't know, if it was hourly or something, they wouldn't be able to do. But I think they mentioned mm -hmm. that in the book somewhere. 
And that that's also given, that's one of the uh, reasons it's often given for why large contingent fees are allowed, you know, 30 per, 30% of a reward, 40% of, of the, uh, the award, because lawyers are sharing the risk with their with their clients. Uh, the, the client may not win anything. Uh, the lawyer shares that risk with them. So there, so um, that should be a uh, an incentive both to take cases that are going to that are, have merit and also for the lawyer to work a little harder perhaps to to argue those cases. But like any system, there there are imperfections in it. So the the rule says, okay, so I've broken this down. Uh, a fee may be contingent on the outcome of the matter except in a matter in which contingent fee is prohibited and we'll get to paragraph D below. Okay, so the, the rule says contingent fees are allowed except in certain circumstances. But then it gives us the various formalities and, and uh, requirements that need to be complied with. It has to be in a writing and in this instance it has to be signed by the client. Remember in most instances there are you know, with informed consent, there has to be a writing that confirms the agreement uh, but rarely does it need to be signed. And this is one of the areas where it does need to be signed by the client to um, hopefully to impress on the client that this is an important matter and they should pay, pay attention to it. Uh, and also to, again, hopefully encourage the lawyer to explain it to the client. Um, also has to state the method by which the fee is determined. So it, it gives that, give the details. How are you gonna calculate this, uh, this fee? Uh, percentage or percentages that shall accrue to the lawyer in the event of settlement, trial, or appeal. And a lot of cases do that, um, where there will be, uh, if you can uh, get a settlement quickly, you'll, there'll be some benefit, there'll be a, maybe a lower percentage if it has to go into litigation, or has to go into appeal, again, the percentages might go up. That's not unusual. He also has to specify expenses that will be deducted from their recovery. And that's one of the things that's missing from those ads that we saw in the previous slide, right? No fee unless we get paid, but in, some, but in many instances, the client is gonna to have to pay fees even if they lose. They have to pay uh, litigation costs, expenses, and so on. And then finally, whether, whether those expenses are gonna be deducted before or after the contingent fee is calculated. Because so obviously, if you, if you deduct those, if you calculate the fee, on the full amount, the lawyer is going to get a, a bigger cut than if you than if you take out all the expenses first and then calculate uh, the fee on the remainder. So that's another surprise that sometimes comes to plaintiffs in these cases. Uh, and again, the client the, the agreement must notify the client of any expenses for which the client will be liable, whether or not the client is the prevailing party. So. Um, What else? And upon the conclusion, the lawyer has to provide a written statement stating the outcome. And if there is a recovery, showing the, the remit, showing what the client gets and how that was calculated. Okay. So, uh, and one thing to note here is that comment three notes that in with even with contingent fees, they're still uh, subject to the reasonableness standard of 1.5a. So a, a fee can be too high and, and fees, contingent fees have been uh, cut because of that. But nonetheless, high, high fees can be 
can be a proof. There's another case in um, that used to be in the older editions of this case book about, um, uh, I think it was a big uh, copyright or you know, a patent lawsuit between Microsoft and IBM or something like that, or no, it wasn't, it was IBM and some other uh, smaller computer company. And this was a, um, uh, a, a bet the farm kind of uh, lawsuit as they call it sometimes where the, the, the smaller company bring the lawsuit against Microsoft or against IBM if they didn't win, they're finished. They're out of business. So, um, and they wanted to argue this case all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so, the the fee that was agreed to uh, went all the way up to I think I think more than fifty percent if it had to be argued to the Supreme Court. And um, that fee was up, uh, upheld as reasonable, given the stakes. Um, that it was really a matter of survival for this company. Okay, so, all right. When, when fees tend to be held unreasonable is where, um, where the recovery is almost certain. You know, this, the contingent fees do help to filter out bad cases, but if the case is just a slam dunk, uh, I don't know, a, a court or an appeals court may decide that a really high cut of that fee uh, is un unjustified or, you know, because the, the recovery is certain and often the lawyer doesn't do much to, to earn that fee. So do those, those ads that we talked to talked about here, do these violate 1.5, 1.5a? I'm gonna say no. Um, because they're not fee agreements, they're ads, right? There are different kinds of communications. A fee agreement is different. Uh, so a certain degree of what, what they call puffery is allowed in even in lawyer advertising. Uh, but that's why we have these rules to clarify so that before the, the uh, representation goes forward, the lawyer explains to the client exactly what fees will be paid. Okay. Um, there are some, I'm sorry, that was 1.5C. Um, okay, we also, there are restrictions here. This is another one. This is one of those rules where you need to be careful to read the whole rule. Don't stop at the first phrase, okay? Don't take this rule to mean um, a lawyer may not charge a, uh, a contingent fee in a domestic relations matter. That's not what it says. A lawyer may not charge a contingent fee in, in um, certain matters, in a matter where basically on, uh, on the securing of a divorce. Okay, the, the lawyer may not charge a contingent fee where the payment or amount of which is contingent upon the securing of a divorce or upon the amount of alimony, support, property settlement, okay? Why is that? Traditionally, there is a sense that uh, part of a lawyer's job in dealing with the divorce case is to try and help the, the, uh, the divorcing couple uh, reconcile. Sort of a, a very um, old fashioned, uh, you can say other things about it, but that was somewhat the uh, uh, held to be an obligation that the lawyer had in these cases. That's not the case anymore. Um, but 
why what this rule means is that this is the part of the, of the uh, divorce which can get ugly, right? This is the part where, um, I mean, we want to certainly we want to leave open the possibility that the parties may decide to reconcile. So we don't want to create an incentive for the lawyer to force them to go through with the divorce if they decide not to, right? But about this uh, section about the securing of, uh, or the amount of alimony or support. Again, um, we don't want to encourage uh, lawyers to, to, we don't want to encourage scorch, scorch earth litigation in these matters, right? Uh, we don't want the, uh, the uh, amount of, of alimony or support to be a big driver for how much the lawyer is going to work and how much how aggressive the lawyer will be. So um, the comment adds that okay, suppose the divorce has been secured, it's been settled, um, but you've got a deadbeat dad. The father is not paying these child support they're supposed to be paying, or is not paying the alimony. So um, the ex-wife goes to goes to court to uh, have that agreement enforced. Okay, can a lawyer charge a contingent fee in that case? Yes, they can, because the amount has already been settled. Right, the controversy over you know how much should be paid was already settled. So this at this point, it's simply a matter of enforcing the legal rights of the of the the spouse, the ex-spouse. They have a right to this, and the children have a right to child support, to alimony. The other party, the other party isn't paying it, so the lawyer may take a contingent fee in that case. The amount isn't going to vary, right? the The amount that the that the other party no owes is known, so that's not going to be an incentive to uh, inflate uh, al al alimony requests or anything like that. So, bottom line on that. Um, don't say in a quiz or an exam or on the MPRE that uh, a lawyer may not take a contingent fee in any domestic relations matter. That's not the case. A lawyer cannot take a contingent fee uh, to secure a divorce or to secure the amount of al to set the amount of alimony or support. Once that's been settled, the lawyer can, you know, if necessary, take a, a contingent fee to, if it's necessary, to enforce that uh, agreement. Okay. People get that wrong every semester. And you guys are going to be the first not to get this wrong. All right, questions about that? Nope. Okay. All right, next one. Forbidden and restricted fee agreements. Um, there have been some changes to 1.8e. The case, and this was recent, this is a, a late 2020. So the casebook has the older version of the rule. So let's take a look at, um, oh, and I forgot to mention, sorry, uh, I skipped over this. No contingent fees for representing a defendant in a criminal case. Okay, this is another one. Don't take that to mean no contingent fees in a criminal case. Um, it's only a, the, the, there's a prohibition on a contingent fee for a criminal defense lawyer. 
um, a type of contingent fee uh, is sometimes you know provided for the prosecution. There are there are jurisdictions where um, maybe the the prosec the uh, DA, uh, district attorney's office that maybe bonuses or uh, uh, raises are linked to the number of convictions that the DA gets. Those have been upheld because uh, the rule does not prohibit that. It does not prohibit the prosecution from getting a contingent fee. Okay, it's so one of these, the, rule, the rules you'll see as we go, we'll go a little further into this. They, the rules go back and forth trying to maintain a balance between uh, the power of the prosecution, the power of the defense in criminal cases. Uh, so in some instances, the rules uh, look out more for the prosecution. Remember, we uh, in uh, whether a, a case is, or a claim is frivolous or not, or is meritorious or not, um, Rule 3.1 says that a, law, uh, a defense lawyer may uh, require the prosecution to prove every element of the defense of the, I'm sorry, of the, of the, of the offense of the claim. So um, you don't have to uh, stipulate to anything. You can make the prosecution do their, do their job. That's um, a, a situation where the rule, the balance of the rule is sort of uh, in the favor of the defense. Other cases like this, uh, the rules are going to give some advantages to the prosecution. So you can't really say that the rules are pro-defense or pro-prosecution overall. They're, 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 they're a compromise, as always. All right. Okay, 1.8e. In, uh, in the book, it's on page 534. So this is the rule up until uh, middle or late last year. Uh, lawyers shall not provide financial assistance to a client in connection with pending or contemplated litigation, except that a lawyer may advance court costs and expenses of litigation, um, the repayment of which may be contingent on the outcome of the matter. Um, so a lawyer can uh, advance court, can advance court costs and litigation. Um, Contingent on the outcome of the matter would means that they, the lawyer may forgive those advances if the client loses, isn't required to, uh, but the lawyer may do that. Otherwise, the lawyer may expect to be uh, repaid for those advances. And it says the lawyer, the lawyer representing an, in, an indigent client may pay court costs and expenses of litigation on behalf of the client. So expenses of litigation, first of all, um, again, note that the, the first line of the rule uh, says in connection with a pending or contemplated litigation. So if, the, if it's not a litigation matter, um, lawyers can provide uh, non-litigation related support, cost of living, you know, or, 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 or uh, rent, food money, and so on. Uh, but with litigation, if it's in litigation, lawyers may not except in these circumstances. Um, okay, so the distinction is between cost of litigation and court costs and cost of litigation and personal living expenses. And the rule, the old rule would never allow payment of personal living expenses. The new rule 
adds, um, it's called a humanitarian exception. I've seen it referred that way. So a lawyer representing an indigent client pro bono. So the lawyer is not expecting to, is not gonna get paid. They're doing a pro bono case and the client is indigent and has no money to pay. Uh, so either an individual lawyer, a lawyer working through a nonprofit legal services organization or a law school clinic, okay, like sort of official pro bono programs, they provide modest gifts to the client for food, rent, transportation, medicine, and other basic living expenses. So we don't know how much a modest gift would be. This is a new rule, and I haven't seen any, any uh, ethics opinions or any, any case law on it yet. Um, but it does allow, in the, in the case of an indigent client, to pay living expenses. In, well, to pay a modest gift. What does that mean? Um, to help out with the rent or to pay the rent? Uh, it's not, we don't know. Um, so that's new. And I don't know how many states have adopted it at this point. Uh, New York has a somewhat similar rule um, already, but, but not the same. So let's see, questions about this before we go into rule, uh, into problem 9-3. All right, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you 10 minutes this time because I want you to do, what I want you to do is really think about not only what the rule requires, but think about how you might, how do you interpret the rule? Can you, can the rule be interpreted different ways? Uh, you know, um, to allow for different, different things. And then think of once you decide what the rule means, are you going to comply with it? So this sort of, you know, you're in, put yourself in the lawyer's shoes here. Think about what you would do and discuss that in your small group and see if you can, can come to a conclusion. So I'm gonna give you 10 minutes for that and I will see you shortly. All right, um, let's start with Constantine. Uh, what did your group say about this? Well, I, I think what we would prefer to do is to just go pro bono. We wouldn't know entirely what indigent might be defined as, but we went out on a limb and guessed that uh, this client would qualify. Uh, we we're wondering though, under comment 13, assuming you're not representing the client in anything else, uh, if you could still give some gifts, and, and again, we would have gone pro bono anyway, but this was more of a just considering all the options. Comment 13, okay. Oh, this is, I'm sorry, this is uh, 1.8, right? Yeah. Okay, financial assistance 
including modest gifts pursuant to paragraph E3. Okay. Um, okay, that's that's a new comment because that's that's a comment for the new version of the rule. Um, So a lawyer may not provide assistance in other matters like a personal injury case. Um, why is that? Why, why, do, why does the rule generally prohibit lawyers uh, paying the client's living expenses? There's an old uh, doctrine called uh, Champerty. You may have heard that somewhere um, in, in sort of the common law. It's a rule against uh, lawyers paying clients in order to bring a lawsuit to benefit the lawyer, right? Uh, so lawyers are not supposed to pay for clients to bring lawsuits. Uh, and the fear is that um, providing uh, support for a client to live might fall into that, into that uh, problem. So, um, and that's why I think this comment here says that personal injury cases, if, if a client's going to uh, going to win some kind of award for that, then the lawyer uh, should not provide any assistance. Okay. Um, so, so you decided that you, you should take the case pro bono. Okay. We thought so, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and if you did that, what would that allow you to do? Uh, well, at that point, you're not restricted to only mm -hmm. being able to have free court expenses and litigation. So this way, mm -hmm. we felt there wouldn't be any potential conflict with maybe covering the groceries and the phone bill if you had to. Okay. Um, let's let's uh, change the problem a little bit, though. Let's, uh, again, since most states have not adopted this rule, really, let's assume we're in a state that has not adopted the new version. So we're looking at... Uh, Rule 8.8E, uh, sections one and two. We don't have section three, right? So we don't have that new provision. What would you do then? What would your group do then? Uh, we would have still gone pro bono just because just this does not mm -hmm. seem like a client with a lot of means to pay you. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, obviously, that means you're taking a, a profit cut to represent mm -hmm. Person, but you know, but what would what would you do though? The, under if you do that under the the uh, the old rule, it still prohibits living expenses, paying living expenses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that would include things like cash for groceries. So, what about the things that they we're looking at in the last paragraph here? There's a, a couple of three things that you would like to do for him. You'd like to buy him a prepaid cell phone so you can keep in touch with him. Uh, you'd like to pay his rent so that he's not out in the street and give him some cash for groceries. Um, would any of those be permissible under the old 1.80? So I'm gonna look at, you know, I've got some people with hands up, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna thank you, Constantine. Gianna? Um, I'll answer the question, but I also have a quick question. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one you want me to go with first, but um, for the comment that Constantine just brought up, I'm just kind of having some trouble understanding it. So um, it says that some modest gifts might be okay mm -hmm. if the representation is eligible for fees under a fee shifting statute. 
Is it saying if the client is awarded fees, however, it does not permit lawyers to provide assistance or gifts um, in which the lawyer is eventually recovering a fee? So is that what it's saying? It's you can provide a gift in a case where fees are awarded, but it, if the lawyer is collecting that fee, then the gifts are not allowed? Uh, I, I, do you know what a fee shifting statute would be? Uh, I have a, yeah, I have an idea. Okay. Right. Anybody, can I, yeah. What, what would it be? Well, is it, it's like where, um, is it where, you know, um, we learned about Instafra, maybe someone else can yeah. explain better than me, actually. <laughs> I know what it is, but I don't know how to describe it well. Well, okay, in general, the American rule is that, you know, each side pays their own lawyer's fees. There are certain uh, statutes called fee-shifting statutes, where um, I think some civil rights statutes are like that, where it's sort of a public policy, we want to encourage, where we want to encourage the bringing of these lawsuits. And so in a case like that, if um, uh, if the plaintiff wins, um, the other side not only pays the damages, but also pays the plaintiff's uh, legal fees. Right. So that so that does not come out of the, the, uh, the, the client's uh, recovery. So that says that even, um, so they do allow modest gifts if, it is, uh, even if the representation is eligible under a fee, uh, so in a, you know, in a pro bono case, lawyer doesn't get any fees. Uh, in a fee, under a fee shifting statute, the lawyer is gonna get fees paid if they prevail and the, uh, the uh, losing party has to pay. So they, it would allow that. Um, however, it doesn't allow it, it still doesn't allow gifts in contingent fee cases or, uh, or cases where fees may be available under contract. Okay, so there's a contract for that. Okay, so so yeah, it, it, so if if the lawyer is going to get paid out of a fee shifting provision, then the lawyer may not provide those gifts. Okay, I get I get what it's saying. So essentially, the representation still needs to be pro bono in order for a gift of any kind right. to be. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So do you want to answer? Well, I forget why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think that, yeah. I think your question was just essentially does uh, rule 1.8 um, E cover this type of um, scenario? I think that was the question. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of agree with Constantine. It seemed to me like um, 1.8 E would prohibit um, this type of, you know, payment because you're, you're financially assisting the client. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I also agreed that um, either you could take the case pro bono or you know, you could help the client get uh, funds without physically taking it out of your own pocket. So maybe you know someone who knows someone who needs to hire someone else who could hook them up with a job, or, you know, maybe you could help them apply for like financial assistance. It seems like there's a lot of other ways to, you know, help him out without physically giving him your money. So that's what we said we'd probably do. That's going to depend on the jurisdiction. There are certainly jurisdictions where lawyers have been found in violation of this, even if they um, sort of put the client in touch with someone who could help. Um, not, not all jurisdictions are like that though. But um, let me ask another question. So, so could you make an argument that any of, these, uh, any of these expenses would fall under cost of litigation, expenses of litigation, anyone? Maybe I'll take some of your questions. Yeah, so, I mean. Yeah, I mean so. um, 
it's Russell. Yeah, go ahead. Russell. Yeah, I was just saying, I mean, potentially, I think the prepaid cell phone could because that's, um, I think, you know, that's, that's going to be the only way that he can probably contact him because I think his phone line was uh, cut off due to his, mm-hmm. due to lack of funds. So I think that um, in order to stay in touch with his client and keep him apprised of, um, you know, everything that's going on with his case, I think one could argue that that falls under the expenses of litigation. Whereas the, the apartment and food may not be as plausible to argue that. But I think that one certainly could fall under that. Yeah, I, I think you could make the argument. It's not going to win in every uh, circumstance, but certainly some jurisdictions, some courts would be sympathetic to that, I think. Thank you. Mac? So uh, I proposed two arguments to my group. They weren't really a fan of them. But so for the um, apartment, you could say that um you he needs to have like a a stable residence so you can send him documents um you can keep in touch with him uh by mail and stuff like that and then um for food this is a stretch but like if he dies like it's a lot harder to represent your client when he's dead so maybe maybe we'll have a really sympathetic Mm -hmm. court and they'll help us out okay can hope for that. Thank you. Hannah, what do you think? I had a quick question about yeah. um, the pro, pro, switching to pro bono. Mm-hmm. So under I, it says that the lawyer may not promise or promise to sure imply the availability of such gifts prior to retention. Mm-hmm. Since they already executed a retainer for the contingent fee, I would assume that they would have to have a new agreement for pro bono. So I didn't know if um, like telling them if we switch to pro bono, I can afford these gifts to you. If that would count as implying the availability of the gift before retention, or if it would be an inducement to continue, um, because if they don't continue the relationship with the lawyer, they wouldn't have their bills um, mm-hmm. paid for. That's a good question. So yeah, so these these sections, uh, Roman numerals one to th- one through three. Um, again, address that issue of champerty, the idea of sort of buying a lawsuit or inducing, uh, incentivizing a client to bring a lawsuit. So basically you can, you can, uh, you can offer gifts if it's an indigent client, but it has to, be top, has to be secret. You can't advertise the fact that, that that's available. Um, so you may not, may not promise, assure, or imply the availability of such gifts prior to retention or as an inducement to continue the client-lawyer relationship. So I guess the question would be whether um, whether the providing those gifts to this client would be an inducement, uh, or would the client still you know continue the representation without the without the gifts? Uh, and that's that's a matter for the fact finder, right? Okay. Um, and would it be? Yeah. I know this is new, um, but for inducement purposes. Do we know if it would be subjective or objective? Like if the client thought they were being induced or if the fact finder thought it could induce them? That's a good question again. But yeah, I think it, I, the rule isn't clear. And again, I don't think there's been any cases on it. So that, that's, a good, that's a very good point. Okay. Um, okay, so yeah, so if, under, under rule 1.8E, um, that would that would be sort of the, the the stumbling block here is whether or not it constitutes an inducement. Um, anybody else? So, what do you what do people think about the argument for uh, the cell phone being 
qualified under uh, costs of expense, uh, expenses of litigation. Brian? Yeah, we, um, that was the, the one that we sort of identified, you know, as like a, an evidence collecting tool. Um, we thought it would be much harder um, to make an argument for the other two. Mm -hmm. So we did uh, sort of, as, as Gianna was suggesting, we thought maybe not necessarily like finding a job for through a friend, but just generally helping um, either with like uh, directing directions to food pantries or to, you know, DSS, uh, like a referral in that sense, I probably thought that was about the most you could do mm -hmm. under the rule. There, yeah, there have been some cases where uh, an attorney will offer a client a job in their office. Um, and that's, that's risky because uh, that, that will often be seen as a violation of uh, either 1.8 E or maybe a violation of uh, 1.5 A as an unreasonable fee. Because um, if, if a lawyer does that and you know the, the, the client is working in their office, when can they stop doing that? The risk is that then you've, you've, sort, of, you've sort of created an ongoing relationship where the client has, has to keep working in your office for whatever you're willing to pay them in order to, to get the representation. Um, suppose the court, you, you've tried the, and the court says, no, the court doesn't buy the uh, uh, cost of litigation argument. Is anybody willing to, um, well, can you make any, can you find another way around this uh, other than, uh, let's see. Again, under one under the old rule, uh, going pro bono doesn't help. Any other thoughts, or anybody who's just who's just going to say, "What are you going to do?" The rule says you can't pay them, you can't uh, help this guy out with rent or uh, food money. What are you going to do, Hannah? I mean, maybe if you have like a list of referral services. Um, for other types of um, public assistance to provide those things for them, you could offer um, a referral. So um, I put them in touch with uh, social services that are available that could help. Yeah, um, that would probably be permissible. I don't know of any cases where that's been found to violate this. Um, Jacob? Uh I, this is a bit of a stretch, but I don't know if it falls under um, compensating them, but if you give them the food yourself, potentially, instead mm -hmm. of giving them money, or if you just offer food at your law firm, like mm -hmm. have a can drive, uh, you know, and anybody can come get it, uh, might be able to skirt around that. Um, like having a, a canned food drive? Hmm. Like if you just Maybe. have, you know, lunches to pick yeah. up or something, you know, so it's not just for the client, but the client is aware of it. Yeah. Or to compensate their food. So like anybody can stop in their, your law office and get a free lunch? Yeah. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. That seems, that seems, um, I don't think a court would buy that. You know, um, I mean, it's, it's a good idea. This in the real case, this was again a clinic case um, that that one of the authors worked on, and what they did there. This was in D.C. though, 
where they have a different and somewhat more forgiving rule on this. And what the, the students uh, got together, the students in the clinic got together, and one of them um, talked about it in church and said that I have a, we have a client who needs help and took up a collection and did it that way. And uh, the court allowed that in that circumstance. Uh, but even there, that's if the, if, if the client, because the, the point of the rule is not whether it's coming out of the client, the lawyer's pocket, it's whether the lawyer is inducing the client to continue the lawsuit. So not every jurisdiction would allow even that. So I hope that uh, the rest of 1.8 E gets adopted more widely. Okay, here's another, uh, again, look, looking at the old 1.8 E, we're still in a jurisdiction where that doesn't, um, where it's the old version. Here's a, a, a different problem. Gianna? Try to convince the client to, or tell the client to try to convince their doctor to prescribe something that they can't afford because a lot of these, you know, anxiety, depression drugs are interchangeable with generic brands. Mm -hmm. They have no insurance um, that I don't know. Okay, so, so one approach would be to see if you can get it, the, the doctor to prescribe a different, less expensive drug. Alva? Uh, yeah, I think you could also potentially, as was discussed in the last answer, um, forward forward your client to um, other like mental health services or healthcare services that can assist in copays and stuff like this and make it medication more affordable because those programs do exist. Okay, let's assume that you've tried that. Or uh, oh, Frank. Could it be argued that might be something related to? to like, I don't know, like uh, expenses of litigation for some reason. Keeping your client alive would huh? be, like keeping your client alive is part of the expenses of litigation. One, um, I'm yeah. not saying, well, it's, it's kind of relevant for the litigation, right? Mm -hmm. So could be, are you like, it might be an expense of litigation? Because it's relevant to one of you the can issues. argue anything, but that's 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 not a that doesn't sound like a sure winner to me. Um, I th I don't think that would generally work unless you've got a very sympathetic judge. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's just let's assume that you've tried all these things. There are no other resources available uh, in whatever town you're in. Is anybody willing to just violate the rule and just uh, help out the client? Frank, Franco? Um, I thought about that and I said that I will violate the rule because eventually the only other consequence will be a professional misconduct under 8.4a. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the sanction upon the attorney will be harsh uh, if your violation was basically providing food to a client that was that didn't have anything to eat. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you could be willing to just sort of take the... Uh, 
take the hit of the disciplinary uh, action, whatever it might be. Um, what's the weakness in that argument, anybody? Mitch? Yeah, I guess one thing that I would see as a weakness to that is like, I guess like if you provided food, the chance of going this far maybe wouldn't happen. But if you were to get, get like suspended or even disbarred or something, um, you would be sacrificing your future ability to help that client as well as other clients that might have been mm -hmm. in a bad situation. So just sort of the cumulative effect, I think, you know, it, it if, and, and like, you know, let's say you do this multiple times, maybe the disciplinary consequences over time are going to become steeper. I, I'm not sure, but it, it could have a kind of a ripple effect to your career. So, so you're, so if you make a habit of doing this, that it could, Harmony. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know, like, you know, like I said, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if like providing food would necessarily get you in that much trouble. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, the, the potential that you're going to begin sort of, um, you know, being involved with disciplinary committees and everything, it's just overall mm -hmm. not good for your career. Yeah. So I, the argument would be that, that there are mitigating factors, right? That you that um, this was an extreme uh, circumstance for the client. Uh, but you'd also have to argue that um, this was not done as an inducement to the client to continue the lawsuit. And I think that would be the, uh, the harder case to sort of present in a disciplinary action, right? Because they might, you know, they might not buy it that you're, that you're doing this uh, purely to help the client and not, out as, not, not as an inducement to continue the case. Hannah? Could you say that um, without the medication, they wouldn't be able to have the capacity to testify or they wouldn't be able to make decisions pertaining to their litigation, um, depending on the um, severity of the depression symptoms that it would make it relate as an expense of litigation? Mm -hmm. Again, I think it's another, another pretty good argument you could make. Um, you're, what you're doing is you're you're trying to we're trying to find arguments that would that would convince a judge that this ex expense uh, the expense of the medication would fall under expenses of litigation, and it's a, it's clearly a stretch, right? That's not what's contemplated by expenses of litigation, but yeah, so maybe you have to be creative and come up with with arguments like that. That that's a good one, Jacob. Uh, I think something with that expenses of litigation is you could potentially make an argument that as a result of litigation, the client is suffering deteriorating mental state. And that's by providing this, like people have already mentioned, your it's a cost of litigation in keeping the client stable and also in uh, compensating what's going on by this case going through. Mm -hmm. Well, suppose I'm the, I'm a mean judge here and I'm saying, well, um, uh, Mr. Corey, that's that's uh, that's. Uh, I certainly have sympathy for your client, but this court's job is not to keep your to keep your client mental mentally healthy and stable. Uh, there are other uh, venues for that, uh, and we're bound by the rules. And therefore, I if uh, I cannot I cannot allow you to do this, um, something like that. And certainly, I mean, I mean, the the of courts are not bound by the rules. By the ethical rules, court could court could do this, right? Court could allow it, you know, assuming they found out about it. Um, but that wouldn't prevent, um, say, the other attorney on the other side from filing a disciplinary claim against you. 
right? Um, and you take your chances. You know, it, chances are, you know, that it would be a minor sanction. You know, maybe a, a private sanction or something like that. But you never know. Uh, and I think maybe depending on how, what the stakes are uh, in the in this lawsuit, it might look more or, my, or might look less like uh, this was an inducement to uh, to uh, get a, a, a high fee out of it. Okay, um, this is a situation where I would you know yeah, I've, I've mentioned this before I think, but um, I mean you have to think about sort of a. a, a uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the word, uh, civil disobedience kind of option here. Uh, you might decide that you make your arguments, decide that, or, but you know, you do your, you make your arguments in your head. Do you think that Hannah's argument uh, for, uh, was a good one? Do you think it's the, uh, a disciplinary committee would buy it? And you may have to decide, well, is it worth it to me uh, as a human being even though I'm likely doing going to get sanctioned for it, uh, I have a uh, I have a human being in trouble here who needs who needs help. Um, and you know, again, I, my philosophy this is just my personal philosophy on this, of course, um, that if you know that I would allow for uh, sort of a, a civil disobedience kind of option. That, but you know, the traditional argument there is that you know. You, you know you're breaking the, the law or the rules and you're willing to accept the punishment for it to show that the rule is unjust, right? Uh, and that's why the rule has been changed. And then maybe that might be a, an inducement for that, for that jurisdiction to adopt the new rule change. Um, and certainly I think some disciplinary committees have, have uh, they have accepted that kind of argument, okay? So I'm not I'm not here to say that you always must follow the rules to the letter, no matter what the consequences. I'm trying to to you know help you think about what would happen, what would you do if you were in this situation, you know, and you might have to decide that well the the, the ethics rules need to uh, need to go go by the go by the by the by in this situation. So anyway, I'm also not telling you to disobey the rules. I'm telling you, you know, that you're going to have to make decisions like this. You know, no one else can make this decision for you. Okay. Any more questions on that? It's always kind of a juicy problem. Okay. Um, most of the rest of this is are, are fairly, um, <coughs> not terribly complicated rules, but <coughs> excuse me. Sometimes that there, um, the exceptions, uh, uh, the language may be unclear. Uh, okay, publication rights. That's a that's a good one. Um, this is a again a fairly straightforward rule. Um, a lawyer may not. Um, <coughs> make an agreement, uh, a representation agreement, giving the lawyer media rights to the story of the representation, right? Um, <coughs> excuse me. So you're representing a client, client doesn't have any money, but it's an interesting story and you think it's gonna be in the news and you think it's gonna make a good movie. 
So uh, can you ask, can you make an agreement with a client where they will transfer to you the literary rights to write that movie uh, and to, to take the, uh, the, the, the profits from the movie? And the rule says, no, you cannot do that. And why is that? Because we don't want to um, incentivize lawyers to, to juice up their, their representation just to make it a better and more sellable story, right? Uh, and the concern is that a lawyer might be inclined to try tactics in the courtroom or so on that um, make it a dr more dramatic story, but ne don't necessarily benefit or might even harm the individual client, right? Um, so that's the concern. Um, the, ex the qualification here is that, um, well, here's, here's some, ex some, uh, examples. Okay. So here, this is the, this is the, the case in this, in the rule that we prohibited. Lawyer represents plaintiff, um, in, in, uh, a sexual harassment lawsuit against a prominent movie producer. A lawyer may not agree to be paid in the form of literary rights to a book or movie based on the lawsuit, right? So it's Harvey Weinstein. Um, and you've got someone who is victimized by Harvey Weinstein. Um, can you agree to be paid by, in the form of the right to, to write the book, which become a movie about that case? Uh, and you may not, because again, the fear is that the, uh, the incentive would be to would distort the representation that it might make a, a client a lawyer more inclined to uh, do things to make the story more exciting rather than necessarily to benefit the client. Um, other except exception or the other uh, other version would be okay. So lawyer represents a, a plaintiff, a horror novelist, in a contract dispute with a movie producer over the movie rights to a vampire novel that the client has written. Lawyer may agree to be paid in the form of a share of profits from that novel. Novel's been written. So there's no, there's no worry here that the lawyer is going to um, uh, that the, the lawyer's profit will be based on the sellability of the story, the marketability of the story, right? Um, so, and the novel is not the subject matter of the, um, of the lawsuit, right? Um, the, the, the subject matter of the lawsuit is, is the, the, the uh, revenue from it. Also, um, okay, lawyer represents plaintiff in that sexual harassment lawsuit. Uh, lawsuit's been concluded, okay? And the plaintiff comes up with an idea and says, uh, Lawyer, how about if I pay you uh, literary rights to my next novel, right, a as part of your uh, payment? And that would, that would, again, be permitted because it's not uh, going to distort the, uh, the legal, the litigation process, right? Um, okay, does that make sense? This one looks like I'm stumbling over this a little bit right now, but I think it's it's really fairly clear. Um, just to, you know, if if there are if there's a literary piece or an intellectual property piece involved, just keep clear whether you know, is it is it a case that involves somebody who happens to be a writer, or is it a case of um, here is the situation 
somebody might decide it's where you make a good movie. You cannot agree to be paid in the form of, well, I'll write that movie. And the client transfers to you that right. Okay. Um, advanced payment of fees and non-refundable fees. Um, generally, a lawyer may not uh, advertise uh, or uh, agree to a non-refundable fee. Generally, uh, fees are always refundable. The law, if a, if a, law, a client pays you in advance on expense on the litigation, uh, that's treated as so that money you know say you you you, you charge a five thousand dollar advance client pays you five hundred thousand dollars you put that in the client trust account it doesn't belong to you it doesn't belong to the client it's in that trust account and as uh, as the uh, representation proceeds let's say you put in five hours a week on this representation you can withdraw five hours worth of your fee, you know, whatever you're, you charge per hour as you earn that amount, right? So let's say you've, you've spent, uh, you know, $150 worth of, of time, which isn't much, it's $500 worth of time on this case. Um, you can withdraw that and transfer that into your account, your, your law firm's operating account. Um, if the client fires you at that point, um, you have to refund everything that's left, right? So um, the the uh, exception would be um, okay. Non non refundable fees generally are disfavored or prohibited. Um, exception is what's called a general retainer fee. There are different kinds of retainer fees. Um, an advance payment could be called a retainer fee, but the typical advance would be what I just talked about. You, you charge a flat amount, $5,000, $10,000 or whatever to go into the account and the client, the lawyer then gets paid out of that amount, uh, withdraws the money as they earn it. A, a, a non-refundable fee would only be permitted in the instance of what's called a general retainer fee where you're not getting paid on an hourly basis. Uh, a general return retainer fee is simply where you're being paid to be available. So you're being paid X, not X dollars per month to be available for the client to call you, right? Um, that's a general retainer fee. And those are generally permitted as law, especially if there's like an existing relationship between the lawyer and client so that they know, so that the client understands what that means. That the uh, they have agreed I'm going to pay you five thousand dollars a month just to be my lawyer, right? And if a case comes up uh, and you have to do some work for me, you know, take the first five thousand dollars out of that fee. If it goes beyond that, then I'm going to you're going to you'll you'll be I'll be charging you hourly. So that's the exception. Um, Non-refundable fees in general. Uh, without that sort of prior relationship are generally viewed as unreasonable under 1.5, sort of unreasonable per se. However, New York has an exception. Um, if it, if you, a, law, a lawyer can set a reasonable minimum fee if it's defined and uh, explains how it's going to be, in, how it's going to work. 
Um, so if you call it a, a reason, a minimum fee as opposed to a non-refundable fee, uh, you can do that. Let's see. Um, Oh, 1.8H, um, a lawyer may make an agreement or a lawyer may not make an agreement prospective limiting, prospectively limiting the lawyer's liability for malpractice. So a, a lawyer may generally not, well, when would a lawyer want to, or a client, when would a lawyer and client want to limit the lawyer's liability for malpractice, right? You'd think, you know, most clients, Hey, if the lawyer screws up, I want to get, you know, I want to get damages from that. Um, this provision uh, allow, allows prospectively limiting the lawyer's malpractice liability uh, where the client where the uh, the client is independently represented. The, the, so the typical situation here is uh, <clears throat> corporate representation, or a, a corporation or a large business or whatever is hiring lawyers, and many big businesses hire lots of lawyers all the time. You know, they have different law, law firms that work on different things. Uh, a, law, a law firm might agree to, rep, to represent a client uh, if the, the client will uh, limit any malpractice liability so that the law firm will not be liable for malpractice to that client. Um, the independent representation would come from the general counsel. So basically the general counsel who's hiring the lawyers, the law firms can, uh, when they hire a law firm to handle a matter for the, for the company, um, can agree that, uh, okay, so we will, we, you'll represent us on this matter. We will not see you for malpractice. Um, and they will agree to that because the, the general counsel has, looked at the matter, decided, okay, this is the best lawyer, the law firm to take this case. And so they, they do, so they make that agreement. Um, it doesn't, you know, the typical individual does not want to do this, but in, in a sort of corporate representation, it's not at all uncommon. Um, let's see. Collection of fees, just some things that, uh, each of these is, is uh, a big issue in itself, but we only spent a couple of pages in, it in, in this book. What's an attorney's lien? Um, well, 1.15 says that a lawyer is basically the, the caretaker of any, of any client property that's in their control, right? So um, if a, a lawyer, a client has to hand over property to you for protection, for safekeeping or something, or some amount of money, um, Say amount uh, money that goes into that client trust account, you have to you have to pay it. They have to take care of it, and you have to give it back when the litigation is is finished. Um, you may not you may not just hold on to the money, or hold on to the documents that you drafted for that client as hostage till you get paid. What you can do though is in under certain certain sec, certain circumstances, follow the statutory provisions to. Uh, create an uh, attorney's lien, so that there so there are legal standards for that. And each jurisdiction will have different kinds of rules for how you create an attorney's lien on money or property uh, or papers in the lawyer's uh, in the lawyer's uh, con control. Um, confidentiality. Uh, what's that about? 
Oh, just the, the the fact that there is an exception to the confidentiality rule. If there's if you're uh, there's a dispute be, uh, between the client between the lawyer and the client over payment, uh, a fee dispute, uh, the lawyer may reveal information necessary to establish their claim or defense. Right, so that's an exception to uh, to confidentiality. Finally, quantum merit. So, so suppose you've taken a case uh, on a contingent basis, uh, and you've put in a lot of time on it, and then the client decides to fire you. Now, you can't charge them an hourly fee for what you've done because it, it's a contingent fee. There's no hourly fee provision, right? So what happens if um, you've take, you're on a contingent fee case and the client fires you without, without, without good cause? Uh, you may recover uh, fees under quantum merit, which means as much as it's worth, which means... Um, if the lawyer either withdraws for good cause or is fired without good cause, um, basically the quantum error would be a reasonable hourly fee for a reasonable amount of time. So you have to estimate how much time did you do put in on this case? Was that a reasonable amount? Is the amount that you want to charge reasonable? And so the, so you can then get paid on that basis. Right? So it's not actually an hourly fee. Uh, but it's probably a good idea to keep track of how many hours you're putting on, even on a contingency case, in case you do get fired and you want to get paid for the work you've done. <clears throat> All right. This is a lot of material. Okay. I'm going to rush through some of this. Dividing fees. Um, when can a lawyer divide a fee with another lawyer from another firm? Um, this is like for referral fees and so on. Uh, the division has to be in proportion to the services performed by each lawyer. So you can't just refer a matter to another law firm, never touch it again, and expect to get half the, the uh, fee out of that. Uh, your, uh, the division of the fee has to be based on how much you put into it, right? How much services the lawyer put into it, as opposed to how much the other firm, the, the firm that got the referral, put into it. And then both firms are liable in case there is a malpractice claim, right? So if there is a malpractice claim, each firm is liable, liable for malpractice to the amount, to the percentage that they put in. Make sense? All right. Lawyer may, a law firm may not share legal fees with uh, non-lawyers, except for the most important one is section uh, 5.4A3, that a lawyer may pay non may uh, pay a salary to their non-lawyer employees, secretaries, paralegals, and so on. That's going to come from legal fees ultimately, but the exception is that that they're not your non-lawyer employees are not taking a cut of an individual case's legal fees. So that this is permitted. You are permitted to pay your employees. The other exceptions here are uh, if you buy if you buy a, a lawyer's practice or a lawyer passes away and you, so you pay out the amount of the, the value to the, to the widow or whatever. Um, the, again, the most important one for most purposes is the, the fact that it does allow you to pay your employees. Let's see. We've talked a little bit about third parties. Um, lawyer, you may not accept compensation from someone other than the client, unless the client gives informed consent, et cetera. What else, what is really important here? 
lawyer as custodian of client property. So again, if you have any property, jewelry or whatever you that might be subject of litigation, you have to keep that uh, separate. Like if you have if, uh, valuable documents, they have to go into a safe deposit box. Uh, funds need to go into a, a, a client trust account. Um, client trust accounts. Uh, most of you probably don't know anything about them. Uh, and most of you won't have to worry about them much. If you're in a big firm uh, or a sizable firm, there's going to be a department that handles all that. Uh, so many lawyers and big firms never see a client trust account. Smaller firms and solo practitioners may have to set up trust accounts for client funds. And that doesn't mean that you have to set up a separate account for every client. You can have one big account and just maintain records of how much how many, how much of those funds are owed to the various uh, clients. And in New York, this is relatively easy to do because New York has, has fairly detailed regulations on this uh, and it's pretty formalized. There are banks that are authorized to handle client trust accounts and they know how to do it. And there are forms to fill out and they can help you do that. So it's, it's not that, shouldn't be that tricky. Um, Last bit, business transactions. Um, lawyer may not, suppose you, you have a client who is, um, I always give an example there, they wanna start a distillery or a brewery or something like that. And uh, you think, hey, I, I'd like to get into that business too. Can you enter a bit into a business transaction with a client? Um, again, there are a lot of formalities. You have, you have to make sure that it's fair. Uh, the provision, the rule says, you have to make sure that the transaction, the terms are fair and reasonable, the client can understand them, they're disclosed fully, client is advised in writing. Uh, the client is advised that you should get a lawyer to, to look at this and we're gonna give you some time to do that. That's 1.A2. So lawyers can go into a business transaction as long as they're scrupulously fair about it. Uh, and the last one I'm gonna spend a moment on is 1.8 C because this is another one. Another one is that students uh, misinterpret a lot. A lawyer may not solicit any substantial gift from a client, including a testamentary gift and a will or something like that, um, unless the lawyer is related to the client. So, basic rule: lawyer may not solicit a gift from a client. It does not say a lawyer may not receive a gift from a client. Right. Um, the problem is the lawyer may not exert pressure on a client to, you know, like you know, juice up their fee by by giving them some property or something like that, uh, giving them a gift. Uh, say that's a nice uh, that's a nice Corvette you have there, vintage Corvette. That'd make a nice gift for me. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, and if if a lawyer if a client spontaneously makes a large gift to you, right? Where you haven't asked them for, you haven't solicited it, uh, then you're gonna, you may have to prove that you didn't solicit it. So there may be evidentiary matters, uh, issues about, well, how do we know that you didn't ask that client to give you their vintage uh, Corvette? Um, but again, the, the key thing to remember is it, the rule does not say a lawyer may not accept a gift from a client. 
the problem is not on the client. The, 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 the rule is that the lawyer may not ask a client for a gift. If the client wants to give you a gift, take out to dinner or something like that, that's fine. And that is a whirlwind tour of the rules on fees. Any questions? Well, if there are questions, you know how to find me. Um, you can always make an appointment with me. If you, say, if, you say, if, you, if you send me an email, me a question, and I will answer it for the whole group and send that answer out to everyone. And I guess that's it. Thank you all for your patience and listening to me lecture for 90 minutes. I appreciate it. And thank you for your work in your small groups. And I guess that's all. And I will see you on Wednesday. So thanks, thank everybody. You. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you, Professor.